Welcome to the True Crime Cafe. I'm Becky. And I'm Angie. And you won't believe the case I have for you today. So Angie, what do you got this week? I have a truly heartbreaking story. I found it through Facebook. It was a page that was recommended. You know how Facebook likes to recommend pages based on other stuff that you've looked at. And I very quickly went down the rabbit hole and very quickly became obsessed with this case. But it's a case that I've been wanting to do for a while. But it didn't feel like it was quite ready to be presented. That's what I have for you today. You uh, ready? Yeah, let's begin. All right. So David Scott Elmquist was born on February 24th, 1993. He grew up in rural Minnesota. Once he was old enough, he traveled to North Dakota to work in the oil fields. He got married on March 11th, 2017. So he was... 93 minus 17. He was in his 20s. 24, I think. Yeah. Um, Math is hard. It is at the end of a very yeah. long work day. On January 12th, 2018. So just what, 11 months after he had got married, 10 months after he had got married. Yeah. He began exhibiting unusual behavior one night when he was at his parents' house. The behavior was so uncharacteristic for him that his parents drug tested him. The drug test was negative. He was experiencing psychosis, including delusions, extreme paranoia, and possibly hallucinations, even though he had no prior history of mental illness whatsoever. Okay. The National Alliance of Mental Illness says that early psychosis rarely comes on suddenly, and it is a symptom, not an illness. This came on suddenly for him which it rarely does according to the mental health experts. So there had to have been something going on, you would think. On January 20th, 2018, so eight days later, David was hospitalized and spent 10 days in the hospital. He was discharged on January 30th with a treatment plan and mood stabilizing medication. The discharging doctor stated the patient, meaning David, does not appear to be at imminent risk for self-harm and is appropriate for outpatient level of care. At the time of discharge, David Elmquist was determined to not be a danger to himself or others. So that was a direct quote taken from the doctor that discharged him. So David and his family had no idea what caused the psychosis. And ultimately, David was diagnosed with unspecified schizophrenia, unspecified psychosis, not due to a substance or known psychological condition and uncomplicated cannabis dependence. He smoked pot. Yeah, I mean, um, I take CBD and it's got the, the, well, we call it the good stuff. It's got the stuff in it, you know. Mm-hmm. And But it's for anxiety. It's, you know, medically mm-hmm. approved. It doesn't carry the stigma that it did when I was growing up in the 80s. So now it's more widely accepted. So yeah. I would think that you said, what, like 2018? Mm-hmm. So yeah, that, that shouldn't have been like a big issue. Mm-mm. No. So it should 
should be noted that unspecified schizophrenia is used as a diagnosis when symptoms cause significant distress but do not meet the full criteria for any disorders in the schizophrenia spectrum or other psychotic disorders class. So there is a book that literally, like, it lists the mental illness. It, it lists, like, the symptoms, the criteria that's, that a patient has to meet in order to be, say, yes, this person has this mental health issue. Yeah, like the... And it's a thick book. Yeah, like the equivalent of Grey's Anatomy for a surgeon. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I've never watched Grey's Anatomy. Oh, that's the name of the book. Because it's also the... I've never a, read it. So. Yeah, it, it's like a big medical yeah, I've never read it. I do have a copy of the mental health disorders book mm -hmm. from years ago when I was in school. Yeah. But yeah, like it goes into detail. Like this is a symptom and this is the criteria for that symptom. Like in the symptoms have criteria, not just the overall mental health issue. Yeah, because like the Grey's Anatomy books, like more on like parts of the body. And it's, they call it like mm -hmm. the doctor's Bible or something. The show was named after the book, I think. Gotcha, gotcha. So. That makes sense. I've never read it. I've never watched TV show though. So, yeah. so David's wife. Okay, and I'm just gonna put this out here out of respect for David's family. I am going to follow how his father does it and not refer to the wife by name. Okay, okay. and that's just strictly out of respect. Um, David's family calls her Miss X, like okay. the letter X. Yeah. So, um, so the wife was of little help during this time. There was one episode where David was on his hands and knees and she slapped him in the face while screaming his name. I'm not sure what the purpose of that was. Maybe she thought she was trying to help him snap out of it. I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah, like if someone's has hysterical in the movies, you see him slap him across the face. Get a hold of yourself. Mm -hmm. But no. So the couple's marriage deteriorated to the point that on February 9th, 2018, so 11 months, after they got married, David told his father that the relationship was toxic and made plans to move home the following day. When his mom questioned him, well, what would she think if she knew that this was what you were planning to do? He told his parents that she would go ballistic if she knew what his plans were. So plans were put in place. He went home eight hours after he he had the conversation with his parents, he was dead. No way. Mm -hmm. Two 911 calls were made that evening. One by his wife, one by a neighbor, I believe it was. An apartment complex maintenance worker actually was first on scene and found David engulfed in flames. Yeah. Yeah. The look on your face. Yeah. Like I'm married to a firefighter, so I've heard more stories than I ever want to remember about mm -hmm. what happens to people, the skin, the medical terms, mm -hmm. the gritty descriptions. And like we would have people over when we first got married. We'd have other firefighters over, even after. And the talk always turns to, well, I ran this call. Well, I ran this mm -hmm. call. And each one was a little grosser than before in terms of um, content and detail. Mm -hmm. Like we're in spaghetti and talking about brains 
friends one time and you know it's nice. just it affects them but talking about it is how they get it out yeah and how they cope with it so when you said that like he was engulfed in flames i i didn't the mental image is something i don't want to remember i'm sorry no you're good you told me it was gonna be heartbreaking so i did i have a brand new box of tissues right here okay so so the maintenance worker sprayed david with a fire extinguisher and he also put out a small fire in the kitchen the police arrived five minutes later however instead of helping david immediately they propped open the apartment door positioned two officers on each side of the door and set up a command center in the apartment directly across from david's and called for him to come out this was because of what his wife told police officers she told them david woke her up covered in crude oil and told her it was time to go and he pushed her out of the out the door she said he locked the door so she could not get back yet according to her statement as she ran down the hall she looked back and saw a whiff of smoke underneath the door the police were also told that david had knives in the apartment leading them to believe he was a threat to them okay Without hearing both sides. I don't want to judge. And oh, I've heard both sides. Well, I like yeah, you, there's yeah. there's a website you can go to that was able to get the recordings of like her interviews. Yeah. Yeah. For more than 30 minutes, David was inside the apartment struggling to survive while suffering from horrific injuries. Infection setting in because that happens quick. Yes. So at the 38 minute mark, police decided that they needed to break out the windows in the apartment to clear some of the smoke out. Have to open the window? Like a minute later, David stumbled out of the apartment and collapsed, and he was finally taken to the hospital. He suffered burns over 90% of his body with significantly more burns on the on his right side. His hands were partially degloved, which means the skin was peeling off. He had inhalation burns in and around his mouth and his eyelids were inverted. So meaning the skin and his eyelashes flipped in and were rubbing on surface of the eye, rendering him blind. There was no alcohol at all found in his system and only traces of marijuana. So David passed away after being taken off a ventilator. I mean, there was yeah. basically no coming back from that. No. Not over 90% of his body. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were full sickness burns, like because the accelerant used in this case was crude oil. So David's death was ruled a suicide. Yeah. Suicide by I have feelings, Angie. I have feelings. I I warned you. I warned you. Hold on. Suicide by self-emulsion is very rare in the United States, accounting for approximately 1% of all suicides. So David's parents and his family do not believe that he did this to himself. I don't believe he did this to himself. I don't believe he did it to himself. Huh? What are you doing? Are you looking stuff up? No, I was looking up uh, what percentage of burns is survivable. In adults, there's only like a 75% 
chance of someone surviving that kind of burn, you know, having that percentage of their body burned. Mm-hmm. 75% chance of surviving is a lot higher than I thought it would be. Yeah. And it's higher now because of recent technologies just in the past couple of years. So it's probably a little lower then, but they would have to get them to the hospital pretty much right away, I would think. But when you're talking about 90% mm-hmm. of his body and their full thickness burns, mm-hmm. I don't see how that is survivable. Yeah. So. This is one of the cases where if my husband were home, I would be like, honey, come be on the podcast. Talk about burns. And he would like, he can just recite those statistics like you would not believe. But mm-hmm. he is at the dentist right now. So even if I caught him, he'd be like, rah, rah, rah. Because mm-hmm. you know, yeah. yeah. Okay. So like I said, his parents and his family do not believe that he committed suicide. I don't either. Now, remember when he was released from the hospital, the doctor who released him said that he was not imminent danger to himself or to others. Like they wouldn't have let him out if they had considered him to be suicidal. Okay. So here's a couple of reasons why they don't believe the wife was rushed out and why they don't believe that he committed suicide. According to her statement, he woke her up and rushed her out the door and then locked the door behind her so she couldn't get back in. But somehow she managed to grab his truck key, her cell phone, and their dog as she was being rushed out of the apartment. What kind of dog? I don't know. But look, if it's a little yappy purse dog that you could grab, like, scoop up on your way out, that's one thing. But yeah, I've got five dogs and there's no, like, even, no. If he's rushing her out the door, though, she wouldn't have had time to even scoop up a dog. So if the dog is, like, right there at her feet, maybe but she was supposedly in their bedroom sleeping and he went so if you believe her he went to the kitchen Mm -hmm. poured this crude oil on himself walked to the bedroom woke her up rushed her out the door locked the door behind her went back into the kitchen and set himself on fire if you believe her statement and that this was a suicide said the fire did not burn his wrists i've seen some of the photos and you can see it clear as day like around his wrists perfect not not a blister on them we're gonna watch it's both wrists mm-hmm. so an independent fire investigator reviewed photos of the scene and said it appears that within a, a reasonable degree of certainty consistent with protected area meaning his wrists as if his arms were resting on the sink edge at or near the time of ignition of the fire the autopsy report does not mention that the wrists weren't burned, like they were considered a protected area. When asked about it, the medical examiner said he must have been wearing gloves. Number one, if that was the case, then his hands would not have been burned either. Number two, it is very hard to flick a lighter when you have gloves on. Yeah, even strike a match because you don't have the dexterity in your fingers because of the gloves. Especially if they're fire retardant gloves that keep your skin from being burnt. Yes. But again, if he was wearing gloves,
robes, his hands would have been covered as well. And they hmm. were burned to the point where the skin was peeling off. So I'm not buying it. Me either. So the police never found the lighter David allegedly used to set himself on fire. Three agencies investigated the scene. Three different agencies. Mm-hmm. And none of them found a lighter in that scene. One article quoted County Attorney Tara Ferguson Lopez as saying, maybe he threw it out the window. The windows that were closed. Yeah, and the police had to break out. Six months after the incident, the wife told the fire marshal investigator that she and her mother found the lighter when they cleaned the apartment a week after the fire, despite stating previously that she never returned to the apartment. Mm-hmm. I, can, I can see your your wheels turning. Yeah, I got feelings. Oh, wait, you're about to have more. Okay. So the police may have planted evidence. So David's dad believes it was done to cover up the massive delay in David receiving aid. So a knife was found near the chair where David was sitting. However, the knife appeared to be clean. No soot, no oil, no nothing on it. No um, fire extinguisher stuff? Because let me tell you, I have set more than my share of kitchen fires when boiling a pan of water. Yeah, I set pan water on fire on multiple different occasions, Mm -hmm. most of the time when my husband's at the firehouse. The last time it was so bad, we had to use a fire extinguisher. And that stuff gets everywhere. It goes everywhere. Like I had just done dishes and I had to redo because we didn't have a dishwasher at our house. Mm-hmm. We had to like scrub down the kitchen, like from, from it was ceiling to floor. It was horrible. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So if there was none on that knife, there's no way I that s- knife was there. I saw a picture because I'm going to, there's a website that, like I said, you can go to for somebody who was able to get this stuff. He's, you know, working in conjunction with the family like he wants to get this story told right so through the freedom of information act he requested like the case files recordings evidence pictures all of that so that's where like i saw the crime scene photos and saw like his wrists in comparison to above and below you know how they were unburned and stuff like that yeah so the apartment door was not locked david's father says he never locked that door after he supposedly pushed his wife out the door. The maintenance worker who extinguished the fire, who was first, who he got there before everybody else, stated that the door was unlocked when he made entry, when he was interviewed by the fire marshal's investigator. He told him, no, the door wasn't locked. I went right in. Said it a little bit differently, but that was the gist of it. If you were to believe what the wife said and what police are saying, David would have pushed his wife out the door and she says he locked it but then set himself on fire and then unlocked it or because remember when she said that when she was running down the hall she looked back and there was a whiff of smoke coming out from under the door so something fifty. yes so David's family continues to try to get justice for him wholeheartedly support that in April of this year David's father sent a letter to the Minnesota attorney general requesting an independent prosecutor to launch an investigation into David's death and all the people surrounding the case. So like the police department, the fire marshal's office, all of that, the wife, the neighbors, all of that. Right. If this was fiction and I was writing it, 
as an author, the wife would have been involved with someone from the police fire, one of the agencies, and they would have pulled some strings. That's how I would write it as fiction. But I'm sure that I'm going to have more feelings before you're done. So in May of this year, an investigator with the attorney general's office responded to David's father stating, and this is a quote, they have no authority over local police and fire departments. Okay. So they're saying, the attorney general's office is saying that Minnesota law does not allow them to review cases or open investigations or whatever, that it all falls to the local authorities in those areas. However, I cannot believe, and David's dad absolutely does not believe, that the attorney general's office as the highest ranking legal office in the state cannot work with the governor to get an independent person to review this case. I agree. It's like saying that the local departments are the be all end all for everything. And if that's the case, then what do you need an attorney general's office for? Right. On the Minnesota Attorney General website, under the public protection section, it says the Minnesota legislator delegated the authority to investigate criminal matters to the county sheriff and in some circumstances, the municipal police department. It delegated the authority to prosecute criminal matters to the county attorney, it did not delegate such authority to this office. Mm-hmm. And it says that if crime victims who believe their rights have been violated should contact the crime victim justice unit. And they have like a big, like, well, it's not big, like half a dozen or so different subgroups that you can contact depending mm-hmm. on the like crime victims reparations board, crime victims rates. And then there's one dose of reality about the drug problem. And then a bunch of additional resources for like stalking and you know things like that but yeah it sounds like things are pretty you know jacked up in minnesota i get that they don't want people going to the attorney general's office for crimes that are committed and need to be investigated however if they've been investigated by the local level and there are discrepancies and possible evidence planning and stuff like that, you would think that the attorney general's office would say, okay, yeah, we're going to appoint somebody independent at this point Mm -hmm. to review everything to A, see if it was investigated correctly to begin with, B, make sure that there was no wrongdoing on the part of authorities. You know what I'm saying? Like, Yeah, it's like a chain of command. mm -hmm. You know, the local town, Mm -hmm. you know, the town level, the county level, mm-hmm. and then you would go above their heads, above their heads, until you get to the attorney general. And it sounds like they've mm-hmm. been through all the levels and now they need the attorney general's help. And the attorney general is like, well... Mm-hmm. You got to go back to those. So, yeah. There is currently a petition at change.org that has over 38,000 signatures requesting that a special prosecutor investigate this case. I signed it. Mm-hmm. I believe that even if, let's say that he, David is in the 1% of suicides by self-emulsion, that let's say that that's accurate. Okay. okay? And an independent prosecutor or 
investigator determines that after reviewing everything, then I think his parents would be okay, not necessarily settled with it, but it wouldn't be this big what if in their life. Like, exactly. um, so yeah, I don't agree with not even appointing. That makes me wonder what is the attorney general's office and the governor scared that this independent person would turn up in during yeah, the course exactly. of the investigation. Like that's where my mind goes. The family has also paid for three billboards to be put up around in Minneapolis to demand that the attorney general and the governor allow an independent unbiased investigation into David's death. Like, hmm. And they have had enough funds donated that they were planning to more at the time of the article that I reviewed. So that is the truly heartbreaking story of David Scott Elkless families continuing fight for justice for their son, brother, uncle, nephew. Yeah. Um, Friend, loved one. Yes. So in and the... Okay, what year did this happen again? 2018? That's so four years. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't go, oh, that's only four years. That's four lifetime. That's the lifetime for every second. Because when our family member was murdered, it was mm-hmm. um, the end of 2007. And the conviction came in, I think, the spring of 2009, around that. It was early 2009. And I was the family member who sat through the trial at my dad's request. And there were a lot of things that were assumed that I didn't know people didn't know because they didn't sit through the trial because it was mm-hmm. it was a really very heartbreaking thing because um, mm-hmm. it was a child. And earlier this summer, my husband made a comment. He's like, yeah, this and this and this and this and the cause of death was this. And I was like, honey, no. I was like, I saw the medical examiner photos blown up to poster size for the jury. And this was what happened. And when I told him, he was like, because I thought he knew mm-hmm. and he was like he felt bad because he didn't know that this is what i had been carrying around since you know all this time mm-hmm. but we were super lucky to get a conviction that quick mm-hmm. even still there are unanswered questions i believe that every murder leaves mm-hmm. unanswered questions behind um, oh yeah i think every suicide leaves unanswered mm-hmm. questions behind. oh absolutely i do not believe that this young man committed suicide i, I, don't I even if it had been a different method based on the articles I've read, the the Facebook page, the other podcasts about it. I would not believe that this young man killed himself, no matter what the method. I find it hard to believe this one based on the information that you've given here. Mm-hmm. So in the description of the show, we'll link the petition if you want to sign it. We'll link the website that the family started and maybe the Facebook page that the family has. It is a truly heartbreaking story and it is it is a story that sounds like his parents are never gonna get the answers that they need. Not even a little bit. But yeah, I can't... I have a lot of feelings about this case. The main one being... I'm not saying his wife did it. However, my opinion based on what I've seen and what I've listened to, my opinion is she had a role in what happened. Thoughts? I 
more feelings than thoughts. Okay. And I agree with you. My opinion is, I'm going to put it this way. I don't see how all of these events could have happened and led up to this heartbreaking, truly heartbreaking finale without her having some kind of role in it. Yeah. So, and a knife with no fire extinguisher stuff really bugs me. It didn't just not have fire extinguisher stuff. It didn't have soot. It didn't have oil. If he dumped the oil all over himself. And was brandishing a knife. There would be something on that knife. And there's not. At least not that you can see in the pictures. If he's wearing gloves. And how is he going to hold the knife and when one hand and do the lighter in the other? Mm-hmm. I can't even start my car when I'm wearing gloves. Like, I can't do anything. I, I. It is very hard to light the lighter when you have gloves on. And if you have gloves on that are thick enough to protect your wrists from getting burned, why would they not be thick enough to protect your hands? Exactly. Like, there are just too many unanswered questions and what-ifs. Like, to take the narrative that has been told by the authorities, the wife, to take that at face value, it's just so unbelievable. Like, I can't see how it's an accurate story. Agreed. Stay caffeinated. And join us next time for another cup of crime.